Okay, everyone, shall we get started? <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks to OIS for having us here and for uh, being brave enough to give us a session about the metaverse. I would normally start off by saying this is going to be the coolest, most innovative thing that you guys have heard all day, but I can't really say that at OIS from what I've heard today. <laughs> it's been an amazing meeting, um, but I'm going to try. So everybody thinks right now that the metaverse is only for social media and gaming. Not true. And I'll show you real live examples. And I'm very lucky to uh, have my friends up here um, and some of the biggest brainiacs in our industry, uh, Michael Chang who needs no introduction, <laughs> Pam Nesbitt from Microsoft, and Kaiser Kaderi from Stanford. All right, let's get started. If anybody's ever seen uh, Ready Player One, this is a scene where they're jumping into the void, and that's exactly what we're about to do. Does anybody remember this? If you're thinking to yourself, what is the metaverse actually? Remember this. Oh, that's that right. little mark with the A and then the ring around it. At. See, that's what I said. Mm -hmm. Um, Kay said she thought it was about. Yeah. Oh. But I'd never heard or it. I'd never heard it said. Bad. I'd always seen right. the mark, but never yeah. heard it said. And then yeah. it sounded stupid when I said it. Violence at NBC. What do you write to it like mail? No, a lot of people use it and communicate. I guess they can communicate with NBC writers and producers and communicate. Can you explain what internet is? <laughs> That's where we are right now with the metaverse. In fact, people still don't know what the metaverse is. What happens, you could, it's conceivable, okay, David, listen to me, because I'm important. reading, I'm reading what Zuckerberg you has to say about well, it. He yeah. didn't tell you enough. No, he, he did. did say, no, he didn't. A persistent, synchronous environment where we can be together, which I think is probably going to resemble some kind of a hybrid between the social platforms we see today, but an environment where you're embodied in it. Okay. That tells me what it is. Well, no. It's a holodeck. It is a hologram. Yeah, it's, it's like the idea, Ultimately, you could go into a room, let's say you're alone, and you're a little lonely, okay? And you like classical music. Sorry, Kramer. I had to stop it there. <laughs> All right. Now that we've kind of established what the metaverse is, we are really going to show you what it is. These are the things that you can do in the metaverse. And in fact, we're already doing them. Precision medicine, decentralized clinical trials, surgical navigation, education and training and mentoring, connected care and virtual care, and of course, e-commerce. I'm not going to... Uh, I'm going to go through this really fast because I really want to hear from the experts. But in terms of precision medicine, we heard some greats today, like Mike Chang give his talk this morning, John Robson from Avellino give his. Precision medicine is the future. I mean, uh, it's all about data sovereignty, digital twinning, which is the ability to create a digital entity that embodies you. It's basically your digital clone. And now you can run simulations on it. And you can figure out in the future what is the best treatment for a patient. You can first detect and then diagnose um, and then figure out what treatment might uh, the patient respond to the best. It's almost like having a crystal ball, looking into the future and then going back and treating your patient. One day we're gonna look back and we're gonna say, wow, you remember that time when we used to like just try different drugs and see what worked? That's not gonna happen for much longer because <laughs> we're here now and the metaverse um, is one of the things that's enabling that. Um, in the past, we used to do one-size-fits-all medicine, where we gave everybody the same sort of treatment-ish. And now in the future, of course, everything is more precise because we're not all the same. 
So it's not one size fits all anymore. And there are some companies that are out there and doing this right now. In fact, the middle picture there is uh, from Babylon's website. And Babylon actually allows you to create your digital twin online. <laughs> it's on their webpage. So this is here right now, folks, and uh, we're, we're moving down this path already. In terms of surgical prep, surgical GPS, how many people have ever used GPS to drive their cars? Everybody, right? Now, why in the world would we not operate with GPS? We don't have to anymore. There are companies that are allowing us to do AR-guided surgeries, and Microsoft and Novarad have a partnership which allows this. Here's a real-life example from August. This is just a couple months ago. The most difficult surgery ever recorded in history, conjoined twins, okay? Surgeons in Brazil and London worked together in the metaverse <laughs> with surgical guidance and practiced the surgery for hours beforehand so that they could avoid um, nerve bundles and blood vessels so they wouldn't cause bleeding. And they perfected the surgical route. This was the result. Two healthy babies. People getting goosebumps out there? Because I am. I still do every time I show this slide. This is medicine of the future, and it's here now. So in terms of surgical education and training, um, my startup company, MetaMed, <laughs> one of the many things I do, um, we started off just doing surgical conferences, and that has very quickly evolved. In fact, that's me standing on stage with all the people in our industry um, on the stage too. We are sharing surgical videos in 3D, and lo and behold, everybody's attending. These KOLs are attending in their avatars. You know, and it's really funny how we're all just kind of figuring it out together. But somebody made the comment earlier today that ophthalmology is one of the most innovative fields in medicine. You know, and this is an example. We have really embraced the metaverse. This is really cool. Mike, you're going to love this. Um, this is a, a surgical art gallery. Imagine if medical students and residents and other doctors from all around the world could just get into the metaverse and watch different surgical videos in 3D. So we created an art gallery for retina. Watch this. You can walk around and peruse, oh, there's a uh, macular hole repair, an RD repair. There's a membrane peel. <laughs> you guys aren't seeing it quite in 3D because you're not wearing a VR headset, but if you were, you would really be able to understand and appreciate the depth. There's a membrane peel. You can actually, you can actually see pretty well there. So a lot of the industry folks are now showcasing their technology using this. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> Kaiser and I um, just uh, submitted for the, one of the first uh, Metaverse papers, so this is really catching on. And I made the cover of Ocular Surgery News last month, which was the first avatar in history <laughs> to do so. In terms of connected care and virtual care, I'm going to let these guys really take this, but there are so many use cases for VR and AR in the Metaverse and for connected um, tools. Um, and not just in our field, but in other fields as well, for dementia therapy, uh, pain control, um, rehabilitation, and we'll hear about some of those. And then in terms of e-commerce, a lot of the industry players are now wanting to do medical storefronts so that they can sell their services direct to consumer. Alcon is one of them, Bausch and & Lomb, and Zeiss. Zeiss actually has a pretty cool technology here um, where... Oh, I don't think that video is going to play, but 
That's me in the glasses that Zeiss's algorithm actually chose for me. So it does a 3D rendition of your face and then uses their algorithm to figure out what is the best shape for your face. And then you click all of the choices and find one, you buy it right there on the spot. Folks, this is the metaverse. Welcome to the future of medicine. Now let's hear from our uh, panel. <laughs> all right, guys. <laughs> ah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Cooler than everyone thought, right? Okay, so I really want you guys to, to uh, feel free to say whatever you want here, but um, here are some questions just to get people started in thinking. How do you think precision healthcare is going to change the way we treat patients? Mike, you want to take that one? Um, yeah, sure, Rania. Um, I think that one of your slides pretty well encapsulated that. I think it looked like one that came from John's talk this morning about the idea is that in clinical paradigms in 2022 medicine, we basically study treatments that on the average work better than another in a group of patients. But I think the question here is, uh, which treatment is going to work better for this specific patient? And I think to get to that, what we're going to have to do is to characterize what are the parameters of this specific patient that matter uh, you know, when a, a treatment is used. And that's the study, that's the research that's going to lead to sort of ultimately what is a precision medicine treatment in 2030. So really excited about that. Hope, hopefully it'll lead to better outcomes. Oh, how could it not? Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, um, Pam, what has changed to allow this shift towards precision health? Like, why weren't we doing this five years ago? Why weren't we even thinking about it five years ago? Um, lots of reasons, but I think one of the main changes is the readily available centralized storage and, and compute that's on cloud, um, which allows you to bring together data from multiple parties and multivariate data sources into one. Sorry, is this too loud? Um, Perfect. Okay. Um, so bringing together all of that data gives you a 360 degree view of a patient that was never before possible and allows you to really plumb the depths of what they're like from a morphological and genotypic standpoint. Um, and that's allowing us to do all kinds of stuff with pharmacovigilance, as he said, or pharmacogenomics and others. Excellent. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, how possible do you guys think, I mean, digital twins are like one of my favorite things in the world to talk about. Um, how possible do you think this is, this technology? And what, what can you comment about that? Anybody? So actually, just to follow on, I'm sorry. I, one of the things I forgot to mention about precision medicine is linked to digital twins, and that's the readily available telemetry equipment that's around us now in wearables, and all of the things that you can buy now out of the, over the counter that, that can be prescribed by doctors to allow people to be measured constantly. And all of that data can be applied to a digital twin, which is, in fact, a virtual digital copy of their current status which can then be used for precision medicine. Um, so I don't, I don't think I answered the question, but <laughs> that was something I forgot to say. So. Well, I mean, just kind of going along those lines, I mean, how many <laughs> folks here are wearing an Apple Watch? Um, you know, when you think about you know, telemetry and how we're able to capture a lot more information from somebody and it's persistent and it's, and it's continuous is also the, the security aspects, which you know, I'm sure Pam can, can go into a little more details and being able to do things on edge. So one of the things is, uh, you know, why couldn't we do this five years ago? I mean, a lot of it all had to do with a number of things, you know, cloud services and compute, um, 
you know, regulations around what is sensitive data. So now that we're kind of going through some of these processes, this is why this is an exciting time right now, is, you know, we're kind of now at a position where now we can utilize these tools. And the really interesting thing that we'll be discussing today too, I, I'd imagine, is just around all the different types of applications. And so as Rania said about digital twins, like, <clears throat> how does that work? Well, you know, you could, so one thing I can just show you in terms of a digital twin, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna ask this question. I'd be surprised if anyone raises their hand. Um, does anyone know what GenoPets is? Oh, you can create a digital twin of your pet? Well, it's a Tamagotchi. If anyone knows what Tamagotchi was, yeah. it basically you could like have your own little digital pet on a keychain. I don't know if anyone remembers that from of back course. in the day. So uh, <laughs> there's a company called, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a Web3 company called Animoco. So Animoco has a bunch of different gaming companies underneath it, and one of them is GenoPets. And what they do is they take your movement data, like your steps, and based off how often you, and they gamified it where based off how often you walk, it actually increases features to your, your Tamagotchi, like your little pet. Makes them healthier. And then makes it healthier, and you can actually then put it into a game. So when you're talking about digital twins, we're already kind of in that, you know, especially for, you know, the Gen Zs and the millennials, are already starting to enter into this realm without even knowing it. Yep. So Unless you don't walk enough and your pet dies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, it's been used for a long time in manufacturing, different yeah. industries, but just not in medicine, right? And, and I'll spare everybody from my digital afterlife uh, <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> Mike, did you want to say something? You know, Ryan, just one other comment about the digital twins. I, I think, um, you know, just talking about feasibility, I mean, to me, there's a few aspects of digital twinning. One of them is, can you simulate something on a computer? Uh, another is, can you predict what's going to happen, you know, given a certain set of you know, interventions, what's going to happen? And may, another one is characterizing, like, what makes Mike Mike and Pam Pam, uh, et cetera. And I, I think the first two of those we can do now. Like, you know, in my own research career, we have done simulation, we've done prediction using machine learning. I think the third one is the toughest one to my mind, like figuring out, well, how exactly do we create a twin of any of us and characterize, well, how can we prove that it's going to respond the way that our bodies would respond? And I think that's a really, really exciting uh, topic. But we've got a lot of pieces that we can put together yeah, you know, moving yeah. forward. Well, for that, you, you actually need um, historical data from other subjects, right, um, to compare it against. Um, Anyway, the point is we're even talking about digital twins right now. <laughs> That's like the first step. Uh, so I'm very proud of that part of it. Okay, um, decentralized clinical trials. Actually, I, I think I skipped my slide there, but uh, there are certain companies that are doing this, like AstraZeneca, for instance, is one of those. What is the advantage of decentralized clinical trials over other or the traditional routes of doing clinical trials? Anyone? I mean, part of it's cost. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of folks have been trying to do this in, you know, internally a lot of pharma ha ha has been trying to do this where it's like, well, rather than having everyone go to a certain type of clinic or, or, or certain clinics, because we have, you know, all these sensors and all this type of technology where we can actually do potentially, like in theoretically remote trials, how do we actually enable that? And I think now with the uh, maturation of you know, certain technologies uh, in terms of like cloud services and, and, and privacy and being able to, you know, for stuff I just mentioned, the other thing is blockchain. 
That's something that, you know, Pam and I were just geeking uh, out on uh, a little bit earlier. But, you know, when you think about it, if I am a participant and I'm in my, you know, uh, we're monitoring some kind of therapeutic and we're doing it remotely, how can I authenticate as the investigator that this is, you know, this in fact is the person that is supposed to be, um, you know, in the trial and from a authentication, now that's bi-directional with blockchain, you can also look at it from, is this the investigator? <laughs> is this, you know, and then there's authorization. So, you know, something that's kind of being discussed is, you know, biometric wallet. So imagine each of us have our own wallet where we can authorize what type of data can be utilized in a study and what can't, depending on the study. Well, then I can enroll in multiple studies. Um, so and get monetized. For it. Yeah, and you can monetize. And you know you can monetize within the study because you have ownership that goes to the data sovereignty that's been discussed. But then, um, so you, you can monetize both within pharma, but then think about other industries. Uh, you can then also do it from the standpoint of owning that data. That you know these biometrics are going to be you know we're going to get into AR and VR, but you know all these sensors are are in consumer devices. So those same companies that want your attention. Um, might want that same type of data. So pretty interesting discussions that can, I don't want to talk too much because I can be pretty loquacious. So, so Pam, I mean, I know you had some thoughts on this. I, as well. I actually, so I wanted to get back to the, to the core question of what, what's the benefit of decentralized. So we're already moving in that direction, but we're doing it primarily, you know, pe people do patient reported outcomes. They just say, you know, how do you feel today? And, you know, answer a few questions. If you were to do that, for example, in the metaverse, and you had the ability to see the digital twin of this person, to see exactly how they really are doing. And in fact, if their avatar were to reflect facial expressions and their, their, the way in which they're comporting themselves, that would give you a lot more feedback without them having to come into the office. So they could be in Tahiti, still on this, this clinical trial, and yet be able to continue to participate here. Additionally, you're digitizing all these results, so there's a lot less manual work because clinical trials are quite laborious for the researchers. Yeah, um, Kaiser and Pam, I, I don't have a whole lot to add to that. I, I guess I, I would just say that, um, you know, you all know the challenges of trials now. It's hard to find who qualifies. It's hard to recruit people, and it, it's, it's um, slow. And I, I think decentralized trials have a lot of potential to try to address a lot of those um, challenges. Um, I, I guess I would just say one uh, potential disadvantage is that one of the things we're challenged about in trials is to recruit people who are truly representative of the That's U.S. Right. population. And sometimes those are the people who may have least access to the te technology that's used for these. And we will have to figure out as a community how to make sure to represent um, everybody. Yeah, actually, uh, that's a really good point. Um, so that's my favorite thing about decentralized clinical trials, because when you get diversity of data, you get a stronger algorithm. And uh, right now, I think everybody is hung up on you know, uh, access to technology, but we have to learn to compare it versus no data. <laughs> so it's not you know, getting data from different sources and how that compares. It's getting no data versus getting at least some data and getting some part of the population. So we have to look at it more optimistically, the glass half full kind of way. All right, uh, gosh, we're going to run out of time here. Um, so I'm going to fly through some of these. Um, Pam, AR, VR devices, what do you think? How oh, can they be helpful? Don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was following my script. Quick, quick. Um, okay, so, a, okay, so um, Microsoft makes uh, HoloLens 2, which is a, an uh, augmented reality device, which means you can actually see what you're doing, but you're, it's overlaid with something, and that is very useful in precision surgery, as you saw in the earlier demonstration. 
VR is virtual reality, which is fully immersive. Um, they're both incredibly useful um, to do various different things. Um, one of the things I wanted to comment on was that augmented reality is very, very good for the things that are not as interesting but are, are necessary in everyday life, which is having meetings where some people may be in the room with you and others may be in far-flung places. And it, it's effectively democratizing that. It's making everybody equivalent in this meeting room. Uh, and that, I think, is tremendously valuable. The only other thing I wanted to bring up was a, a companion thing, which is telepresence, which is the ability for a physician or anybody to put themselves in a place they might not otherwise be able to go, like outer space or inside the human body. And there's something called the pillbot, which you swallow and can be controlled by an Xbox gaming controller through the body so that you can actually, a physician can actually travel, do an upper endoscopy, or perhaps even in the future go into the eye and see things for themselves. Um, and I think this is a tremendously important and frankly the future of medicine in the world. There's a, a, a character like that in Marvel or something, right? Yes. <laughs> Voyage, yeah, it's Voyage of the Future, I think. Also. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? Um, you brought up a good point. So the one thing that like bugs me about this whole metaverse conversation is when people are like, well, why would I use the metaverse instead of Zoom if I wanted a telepresence, right? Mm -hmm. Kaiser, can you talk a little bit about what types of things, like how do we actually gauge performance and metrics in the metaverse? Yeah, this, this fly loves me. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, when, when you think about the metaverse, you know, a lot of people think it's related to virtual reality. And, you know, it's, it's you know, a better, kind of like a nice way for me to think about it is, a, is an extended reality. You know, so like, you know, we talked a little bit about heart rate variability and like your Apple Watch or your Aura Ring. And then when you're fully immersed is like virtual reality and kind of in between is augmented reality. So, you know, where are things going? What, the way I kind of look at things and when we're talking about performance is it doesn't always have to be hardware. It could also be software. So some of the things that we've really been focusing on is psychometrics. And I know when you think about it from our diagnostics, we think about visual field testing in terms of, um, you know, perimetry. And when you think about it, the eye is embryonically part of the brain, but the only thing we can really assess in terms of attentiveness, in terms of a perimetry test, is fixation losses. That could be a sign of cognition, attention, fatigue, things of that nature. But what if we democratize these psychometrics into software applications where they kind of sit passively, when you're able to do whatever you're doing, whether you're at work and you're using you know, your Microsoft Office or you're, you know, you're playing a game. Um, so that's kind of where we've really focused a lot of attention to. And so some of the things that we developed, if you go to the Stanford Vision Performance Center a website, you go to technology and you click on demos, you can play games that actually have an SDK in them, a software development kit, where you're able to generate a vision performance index that tells you about your performance visually, cognitively, and from a motor standpoint. And we've, you know, screened that that bio, that metric against different types of the top five global eye conditions, but it has a lot of different uses. And so when I kind of think about like where the future's headed in terms of um, this whole concept of the metaverse and how it can help with, with 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 medicine is, you know, if you're constantly able to capture data that can assess somebody from those kind of metrics, then you can identify points of intervention a lot earlier in the life cycle rather than, you know, currently in, in ophthalmology, what, what do we do? We look at structure. 
we're looking at the tail end when there's actually damage done and trying to figure out how to protect. But if we can go further upstream, then we can prevent a lot of diseases right. a lot earlier. Best way to protect is to prevent, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mike, do you have a comment on that? Or, or maybe, uh, so let me ask you this, hypothetically. Uh, what do you think, if we can monitor patients, then is there a way that we can enhance their capabilities in the metaverse? <laughs> I know, like, I know you're dying to answer. <laughs> no, you already talked about that. There's, um, I, I really hope, I, yes, I, I definitely think so, and I hope so. And it's going to be on us to sort of prove that, you know, we can do better uh, compared to the way we do things. Right? And may, maybe I'll just leave it at that. Um, so can I add something to what I was talking about before that I think I want to talk about? Please, yeah. <laughs> so I was talking about AR, VR, and telepresence. Um, and democratize is my word for the day, by the way. Um, I believe <laughs> that you can democratize uh, education of medical students and the provision of care to patients through the use of AR, VR, and telepresence by allowing pay, uh, people who um, are being educated in perhaps a far-flung place where there may not be specialists to have the quality of education through the use of holographic uh, models of anatomical structures and a variety of other things they can see and learn in the metaverse or in augmented reality. And in fact, you can go through Teams, which is a Microsoft product, and see what a person wearing an AR headset is seeing as they dismantle um, a body or an eye or something and learn from that. In the same way, you know, there are a lot of specialists that are just not available in many places on this, this earth. And you can bring care, specialized care, even robotic care, which is done by the specialist in those places through the use of these technologies. So I just wanted to carry your point. Kaiser, go for it. Oh, uh, so. <laughs> augmentation. Yeah, so in terms of augmentation, you know, one of the things that I kind of developed a little bit earlier on in my career was um, I looked at visual field testing and neutral density filters to um, create a profile around uh, baseball players uh, based off um, magnocellular, cell, magnocellular upregulation. So basically cells in the back of the eye that are involved with motion detection. Uh, what I found was actually baseball players are really prolific at batting. They have non-M-cell uh, activation. So think of it similar to like fast twitch and slow twitch muscles for like from a, uh, from a physical standpoint with athletes in different roles in the sport. So what we did was when I saw these patterns emerging is, you know, I wanted to use something interactive and something that was fun. And so I was, I was using video games where I implemented these psychometric algorithms and it actually translated into improvement in batting performance on field by 22%. I was super early in the, in the cycle from a technology standpoint. We were, this was 2005, six, seven. So like the first <laughs> iPhone was kind of like coming out. <laughs> so, but the concept of like, can you use, you know, in this metaverse, in these, you know, in this 3D internet, can you actually, you know, have this neuromodulation? Yes. Uh, you know, I've kind of seen it firsthand, and that's what's really exciting, is not only do we monitor just to, you know, assess someone's steady state, but you can actually help augment it, whether it's from performance from, you know, rehabilitation back to baseline, or just, you know, taking whatever they have and optimizing it even further in a, in a quote-unquote healthy individual. Um, Ryan, may I make just one comment to follow on that? Because it's, 
uh, this isn't going to be a patient comment, but it's going to be a comment about how all of us work together, just because just we're in a conference right now. And um, I mean, I love being at conferences to see people in person, but sometimes I wonder, you know, does that feel a little like 1950 or 2019 when we have to fly everybody in the country into San Diego to sort of be together and then we come back next year and do that? And maybe there's, I, I, I love the um, metaverse meeting videos that you showed up here because um, I really um, think maybe this is time for us to rethink, are there better ways that we can think about collaboration that aren't so 1950 or 2019 that are based on sort of virtual presence where we can really be more productive by doing things on an interim basis and then coming together when we really need to to get stuff done. So I, I think there's a lot of really exciting possibilities here. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. Yep. <laughs> All right, I guess we should wrap this up. Um, guys, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And I hope everybody enjoyed this, uh, this out of the box session. Thank you. Thank you.